Acts chapter 18, we continue the story of Paul on his missionary journey. Paul was all about missions, and this is uh, another one of his journeys that he has completed, or he's nearing completion. And the thing about Paul that we saw last week, which many of you said was uh, quite encouraging to them, is that we get a glimpse into Paul's heart. We see that he was a regular guy. He was a regular guy who approached the ministry, he approached the mission of Christ to make disciples from the, from the same perspective that, that we do. He approached from the, from the position of feeling the command of God to make disciples. You know, Paul was told specifically by Jesus that he was to go to uh, the Jews and, and to declare the the gospel. He was sent on this specific mission, and he was even shown how many things he would suffer. If you recall, in Acts 9, at, uh, when he was knocked, uh, you know, on his back there on the road to Damascus, and he meets Jesus, he's there blinded, and, and this guy, the Jewish guy, or excuse me, a Christian, this guy Ananias, uh, Jesus tells him to go and see Paul, who hates Christians at that time, and says, you need to tell him what he's going to do for me, and, but also how much he's going to suffer. And so Paul knew this. He experienced this throughout his many missionary journeys. If you look back over the course of, uh, you know, what we've just looked at recently in, um, in, in the area of Macedonia, in uh, Thessalonica, in Berea, he's chased out of the cities. In one city, they don't do a good job of persecuting him, for the, so the Jews from the other city make this massive journey of like a hundred miles to come and persecute Paul because, you know, the Jews in that city were dropping the ball. I mean, this guy had it happening to him all the time. He was under this persecution. And it was encouraging, I've heard from many of you, to hear that Paul was just like us, that he developed this, uh, he could develop this discouragement. He could develop a little bit of anxiety and worry over these things. You know, oftentimes we look at the heroes of the faith as these superstars that basically do everything right. But we saw last week, as we looked at our text, that it was, it was really the Lord who ministered to Paul's heart. Paul was there preaching in Corinth, and, uh, you know, he was, he was just down and out, discouraged. And it was the Lord who came to him, and told him, Paul, you don't have to be afraid in this city. Continue to do what I've called you to do. Speak the word, proclaim, because I'm going to keep you safe. I'm going to keep you uh, uh, protected in this city. Now, we said last week that that wasn't going to be the case for the entirety of Paul's life because we know that he went on to experience many difficulties and persecutions. But the Lord knew that Paul needed a break here, that he needed to be met in a specific spot. And so, we get a glimpse of what it means there to be a disciple at some point. As Paul is on this journey, he's there. He meets this couple uh, called Priscilla and Aquila. They're these tent makers. He ends up uh, lodging with them and developing a friendship. And these people, through seeing Paul's example, they buy in. They see that he's all about Jesus, and they're like, man, this guy is amazing. We, we want to be a part of that also. And so we come to our text this morning. In Acts 18, verse 18, and we see Paul's continuing journey. He, uh, Luke writes this for us. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and took leave 
and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. All right, so Paul makes his way. He's, he stays a little bit longer after this whole uprising where the Lord protects him with uh, this proconsul from this area. He stays uh, even longer than what we are told. In verse 11, we find he stayed for a year and six months um, teaching the word of God there in that city. But on top of this, it seems that he stays even a bit longer than what is recorded there. He feels the uh, opportunity is there. He feels that the Lord's protection is upon him. And so he stays. And then after a certain number of days, he leaves on his own terms. In previous cities, as we said, he has been chased out of cities. He has been on the run for his life. But Paul leaves on his own terms. Now, Luke leaves this here for us, not only as a description of historically what happened, but as a marker of God's faithfulness to his promises. God did what he said he would do, not only in that moment of protecting Paul from the mob before uh, the Roman proconsul, but he kept him in that city safe until the day that he left. Now we find that Silas and Timothy are not described as leaving here. Evidently, they are left behind to continue the work of discipleship. And now we find that Priscilla and Aquila, they go with Paul to Ephesus for ministry. Now, as we come to this section in Acts 18, we see a couple things happening. First, that Paul begins a work in Corinth. It begins to take off. He leaves uh, Silas and Timothy there to continue that work. These are people who he has discipled. And then people that he has begun to disciple, Aquila and Priscilla, people who have already met Christ but have maybe seen uh, the call of God upon Paul's life, and they, they're curious at that, they begin to, to press in deeper to Christ. And so Acts 18 is, we're getting these little glimpses of, of discipleship. We see that Paul was a disciple, and he makes strategic moves for the sake of the gospel. He does things specifically and intentionally so that people might meet Jesus. This is the call for all of us. It's not just a call for Paul, but we, all who trust in Christ for salvation, are disciples. And we should obey Jesus in his command to make disciples. We are both disciples and we are to make disciples. And we've said this again and again here, a part of our church, we are about intention. We want to do things intentionally, strategically for God's glory. We want to be able to answer the question, why do you do that? What is the point of that? Not just that's our preference, but the reason that we do it, the reason that we do it is we try to operate with great intention so that we can live strategically in this city for God's glory. We are all to make disciples because we are disciples. Disciples make other disciples. As we were reading this week in the book on Friday uh, at Community Group, one of the things that we looked at was that Jesus' claims were completely self-centered. His teachings were self-centered. When Jesus calls people, he calls them to follow him. And when he makes disciples, when we become disciples, he doesn't say, make disciples after my teachings. He says, make disciples after me. 
He doesn't say, baptize in my teachings and my moral arguments, but he says, baptize in my name, in my authority, in my power, in who I am. This is why Paul gets to it in Colossians, where he says that people who are Christians, those who trust in Christ for salvation, are hidden in Christ with God. Not hidden in Christ's teachings, in his moral arguments, in his nice and helpful perspectives, but in Christ himself. We are hidden in Christ in God. He is what we are after. He is the end. He is the goal. He is the prize. He is the treasure. He is our heart's delight. For disciples, this is what we're after. We want to make disciples of Jesus, not of ourselves. Sometimes you can meet someone and they're real exciting. And then after you get to know them for a while, they start to get boring. It's not the case with Jesus. If you're making a disciple after yourself, people might be like, oh yeah, you're pretty cool. But after a while, you're like, I don't really like that about you. I don't really like that about you. I don't but with Jesus, there never come a point where you're like, I don't really like that about you. He's always amazing. He's always perfect. He's always blowing your mind. He's the only one that satisfies, and so we make disciples after Christ. Now, this was the perspective that they were pursuing. Silas and Timothy, they stay behind. Priscilla and Aquila, they decide to go to Ephesus uh, with Paul for ministry. Listen to what they're doing here. I want you to see this uh, because this is highly uh, applicable to your situation. These people, Paul, or excuse me, Priscilla and Aquila, they developed a church planting mentality. And we've talked about that a million times. Like we are a church plant and we're developing a church planting mentality. And we've talked about our ultimate goal is to plant churches out of our church. That we want to send out other churches, we want to help more people meet Jesus through our church. And right now, we're in boot camp. We're in this training ground. We're preparing for that day when Jesus would call and say, go, it's time. Let's step up. And one of the things that church planting requires is that when you go, other people need to go too. We've talked before about how the vision and mission of our church has changed from the very day that we got here. First, we thought it was going to kind of be similar to uh, the previous church plant that we were uh, serving with and, and a part of. But as we got here, and as we prayed into it, it began to become clear that what we were doing here is more, we're, we're a place of triage, a, a place that is more of a hospital to sustain and build and equip his people. Because over time, we began to see that the majority of our, our congregation is students. You know, we're probably like 70% students, 30% people who have jobs in the area. But one of the hardest things about church planting is when you need to go plant a church, convincing people to go. But let me tell you, you guys are all on a timer. You're, you know, there's like a bunch of you, like, I'm going to be out here in six years, I'm going to be out here in four years. What we're working towards is sending you out. All we need to do is hear from the Lord. We're going to this city, and then it's going to be like, all right, the Lord's raised you up. You're prepared. You know what it's about. We're all going to this city. You're going to have to move anyways. Let's just get jobs in the city we're going to. That's where the Lord's leading. 
So we're developing a church planting mentality just like Priscilla and Aquila. Now, I want you to see this. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. The only thing that qualified them was that they had a job. That was it. They weren't like, oh, they were super spiritual. They were super helpful. Paul's like, I'm going over here. And they were like, well, we, could, we could work there. This is what the Lord will do in your heart as he begins to impress this call upon your life. As we begin to work towards church planting, as we begin, uh, you know, and maybe it's not with our church. Some of you guys, the timer will run out and you'll move to another city, but the Lord's going to call you to be somewhere. I need you to just say, like, the thing that most qualifies me to be a part of this church is, like, I have a job in that area. And, like, I'm going to press in and serve with this group of people for God's glory. There's no remarks about theological training. It was just basically like they weren't lazy. That was like the bottom line. The reason that they were willing to go, though, is because they were disciples of Jesus. Not in the sense of the 12 disciples, like, you know, they're not like this original 12, but they were following Jesus. They wanted to be a part of what he was doing. They cared about the things that he was doing, and so they were like, yeah, uh, of course I want to be a part of that. There wasn't a lot of back and forth that we find here. Now, Paul, these people travel with him. He comes to the city so, uh, called Senkri. He cut his hair. He was under a vow, we're told. This is an eastern seaport of Corinth. It's a Gentile area. There's a church there we know from Romans uh, 16. We find this description about this vow. There's speculation and thought that this is a Nazarite vow. This is something that would happen within Jewish culture to show uh, uh, devotion to God or would also happen in thanksgiving. And likely that this was, uh, Paul was taking a part in this vow to show his thanksgiving for protection, uh, for God's protection while he was in Corinth. Uh, And for Paul, the Nazarite vow, and for for all who would take the Nazarite vow, not just for Paul, uh, it involved... uh, abstaining from alcohol, so no wine, uh, or as it was described in the scriptures, no fruit of the vine. Uh, And then we also see a prescription for no cutting of your hair. So these are the two things that kind of come with that. It happened over a certain period of time, and it would be completed uh, with the cutting of the hair. You had to spend some time living in uh, the land of Judea to kind of like wrap it up. So if you were in Gentile lands, you had to go back and live in Judea for like at least 30 days, and you could only complete this vow at like a feast that was happening. So one of the feasts within the Jewish calendar. Here's the deal. This vow, we see that Paul following, it's not prescribed for Christians, but it's also not prohibited. He's he's not, not supposed to do this, but it's not like something that you're commanded to do. This was something that he did of his own, um, He volunteered to do this. It was something that he did out of his own heart and service to the Lord. But also, this, like all things Paul did, was was also probably partially strategy. For Paul, observing a Jewish practice such as the Nazarite vow, it wasn't inconsistent with Christianity. And it probably allowed him to have more acceptance among the Jews and have a greater hearing. So he said, eh, why not? Like, I am thankful. There's this option. The Jews will see it, and I will have greater acceptance. Seems like a win. And so uh, we believe that he took uh, this vow uh, and made his way um, along. We come to verse 19. When they came to Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself went into 
the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So they come to Ephesus. Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila to stay behind, perhaps to establish their tent-making business and just kind of get settled. He himself, we're told, goes to work. He goes right to the synagogue uh, and begins reasoning with the Jews. Now, this is a contrast to what we just saw in Corinth, because in Corinth, he said, you know, like, Jews, I'm no longer going to you. I'm going to shake out my, uh, my uh, garments among you to say, like, I'm separated from you. So this we see Paul is continuing in his call to proclaim the gospel among the Jews first, although he, he jettisoned the Jews in Corinth because they would not receive him. Uh, but here, he's still remaining faithful to the broader call upon his life from the Lord. He goes, he's proclaiming the gospels first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. He's reasoning in the synagogue. We come to verse 20. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. Now, we don't have a description of, like, what's, what's your deal, Paul? Like, like, these people want to hear more. Like, they want you to be around. And then you're like, no, peace. I'll see you later. Uh, we don't really have an explanation about what was happening here. But he likely left to fulfill his vow, uh, you, you know, before the, the, there's a feast approaching, likely. Um, and because he needed to reside within Judea for 30 days to fulfill this vow— uh, it's likely that he tried to jam back there really quick. Um, around if the if the feast and the timing of the feast was, which kind of we believe from this area to be the feast of Passover, the seas were closed at a certain time frame because uh, the rough nature of the seas around that time. Um, so they would be closed until. Well, you don't really have a date for the front, but March tenth, um, they would be closed un- until around that day. And then uh, they would be reopened, so he needed to book it out of there because it wasn't going to be quick travel. And so there's likelihood that he needed to do that, but also his home church is uh, Antioch in Syria, Syrian Antioch. And so likely he needed to wrap up this missionary journey and then begin the prep for the next journey. He's already done this once before. He went back, explained what happened, raised more support, and then started off on his next journey. Here, it seems like that's probably what he was doing. So he tells them, look, I can't stay. Verse 21, though, he says, but on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. So Paul tells them, it's my heart's desire uh, to be with you. I want to come back if it's the will of the Lord. (coughs) Now, this is... Uh, something that we moved through fairly quickly because Luke just puts it in there and drops it in there as a part of the narrative. But uh, theologically, we want to take a moment to see that what Paul's doing as a disciple is he's submitting himself to the will of God. When you're a disciple, you're following the instructions, the directions, and the commands of Jesus. And so his, his posture is not yes or no to this group of people who are making a request of him, but rather, I'm going to obey Jesus, and if he says I can come, then I'm going to come. I'm going to, I'm going to be back with you before you know it if Jesus leads me there. This is a wise statement because Jesus often leads us to places that do not make sense. He leads us into places that look confusing at first, And it's not till way later in hindsight where we're like, oh, I I see what he was doing there. But as disciples, we focus on the wrong things a lot of times. We start asking the wrong questions. 
There's an instance where Jesus is spending some time with some of his disciples, and they're in a boat making their way across the sea. And the disciples, they begin arguing about bread, and Jesus has just made some statement to them about, like, you know, beware of, of the leaven of the Pharisees, and, you know, and they start talking about bread, because previously, Jesus has provided bread for 4,000 and 5,000, like, out of nowhere, and they're like, yeah, where are we going to get bread now? And Jesus is like, you guys, you don't understand, like, you don't understand what I'm talking about. This is a part of discipleship, like, we often are like, oh, Ah, and that's like the wrong thing. Jesus is saying something to us, and we need to zoom out and see the bigger picture, but, but we're so focused on the small detail. As Christians, we need to say, if Jesus wills, if Jesus leads us, if he's opening the door, then we will follow. Verse 22, when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So a little bit confusing here because he's trying to make his way uh, to Caesar or to uh, Antioch, but he, we're told he lands in Caesarea, which is not in Syria. Um, we're not told that he specifically visits Jerusalem, but it looks like that's what happened. We're told quickly that he went up and greeted the church, and then went down. He was like boom, boom, making these uh, quick stops along the way. Uh, likely he went there to check in, also perhaps to fulfill this vow. Uh, we come to verse 23. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Persia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul comes, he checks in, he spends some time with the people of uh, Syrian Antioch, and then he's out. Boom. All of a sudden again. And he goes back, he circles back through regions that he's already been to, strengthening the disciples. These are other people who on previous journeys have trusted in Christ for salvation. And he's there to build them up, to strengthen them. He's had to go in to the regions of Galatia before and combat some of the people who have come in. He's written to them. We find this in the letter of Galatians. Uh, we find similar letters or similar tone in Colossians. And Paul wants to go and make sure that they are strong. This is the work of disciples. This is what we ought to do for one another. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. You see what he does there? He tells them that. He tells them to encourage each other and to build each other up even though they are already doing it. Why does he do that? Because we sit at a distance and we say, oh, they seem pretty encouraged. But you don't know what's going on in the heart. You don't know the things that are happening in your mind. I don't know what's happening in your minds when you're laying in bed at night. You can't go to sleep. The Lord can meet you there, but I want to be able to obey. We should obey and encourage each other, even though we are already doing it. We're appearing to be encouraged already. In Ephesians 4, in this city that Paul was, was previously a part of, Paul writes, and he says this in verse 15, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, 
into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see how Paul describes that there? We're all connected. Everyone's got a part, a role. He says, each, each part of the body, we're joined and held together. Each part of the body is equipped, and each part makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Each member of the church has a gift or ability given from God to serve one another. But Paul puts that clause in there. He says this, each part when it's working properly. It's not very helpful if the part isn't working properly, if it's broken, if it's, if it's hurt. But if it's working properly, then it's helpful for building the body up in love. Now the question is, how do we get it to be working properly? It's got to be connected to the right source. Paul gives us this clue as we begin that in Ephesians 4. He says this, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. The only way that you're going to be working properly is if you're connected to Christ, the head. You might be, you might be a smaller part of the body that's you know, on the extremities or, or maybe something that you can't see that's not useful. And a lot of times, those problems arise because there's something neurologically wrong. There's, a, there's, a, a, there's something wrong between the head and the body. It's not receiving the correct signal. It's disconnected. And the only way for that to be restored is to restore that connection. We need to be connected to Christ. It's not enough to just be next to somebody else. You yourself personally have to be connected to Jesus. You can't be trying to take from somebody else. Oh, you're next to Jesus, so I'm going to be next to you so I can get like a little bit of what you got. It doesn't work like that. You have to be connected. We come to verse 24. We're introduced to a man called Apollos. <coughs> now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. So we've got this guy, uh, Apollos. Uh, by external appearances, this dude seems to just be like a rock star. He comes from the city of Alexandria. This is the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Uh, this was the Athens of, of Rome. Uh, you know, we looked at Athens a couple weeks ago and saw that it was, you know, a leading city in terms of uh, classical knowledge and, you know, philosophy. It had uh, just a huge place of culture and uh, for, for, the, for the Greeks. But here, Alexandria is the leading intellectual, cultural city of, of Rome. 
This uh, city had a massive museum and a 400,000 volume library. It was legendary for, for its library. Uh, there was a massive Jewish population that existed there. And these people who were a part of this, the, these Jews who were in the city, they weren't just like average blue-collar worker folks here. This was a group of Jews who were academics and scholars. They were, uh, they were super intelligent, and they even contributed to producing the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which you can, we use and still use today, uh, called the Septuagint. They were the ones who assembled this and translated it from Hebrew uh, into Greek so that we might have the ability to read that and have access to it today. They made huge contributions, and this was the atmosphere that Apollos came from. Now, apparently he had encountered Christianity before he came to Ephesus. Uh, We're told here that he was an eloquent man who was competent in the scriptures and had been instructed in the way of the Lord. This means that he was trained in the best schools. Uh, He knew a ton about the Old Testament, and he was able to articulate what he knew. We're told he was eloquent. He was able to communicate this. And so those who are watching see that he has the potential to be useful for the gospel. He's able to articulate the truths of Scripture. Not only that, but we're told that he was fervent in spirit. And that he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He has, he's, he's not only eloquent, he's not only wise and trained in the best schools, but he's someone who is under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is the most important component because it's the Holy Spirit who testifies to Christ. Jesus told us that I will send the helper and the helper will lead you into all truth. Without the Holy Spirit, you can't accurately testify to who Jesus is. We need the Holy Spirit to empower his people to serve Jesus. Not only do we need the Holy Spirit to empower his people, we need the Holy Spirit to even give us the desire. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we don't have that desire to do the right thing to serve the Lord. We look inwardly and selfishly. And so he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important for us to see because the Holy Spirit provides the motivation and the means to accomplish what God has called us to do. In Romans chapter 12, Paul writes uh, similarly. He says this, Do not be slothful in zeal. And he's writing concerning Christ, being a Christian. Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't be lazy about, your, about how much you care about Jesus about how much you care about living the Christian life. He said, but be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. The command there is, it's interesting. Paul's perspective. He contrasts being filled with the spirit. It doesn't mean being indifferent. If you're saying, oh, I'm a Christian, but I'm kind of just like, you know, I'm gonna let you guys do everything. You need to repent and you need to come correct and ask the Holy Spirit to fill you And you need to get out there and serve the Lord faithfully. When we are filled with the Spirit, we're able 
to do all that God has called us to. And you can rest in the fact that you're doing God's work. And if you're not doing something, it's likely because the Holy Spirit hasn't led you into it. It may open those doors. Sometimes it's because you're lazy and sinful, but if you're trying to be filled with the Holy Spirit, be led by Him, He's going to lead you into all truth. Now, this guy, Apollos, he taught accurately concerning the things concerning Jesus. Accuracy is important. No false teachers up in here. We don't want that. You've got to come uh, and speak truthfully and accurately about Jesus. Uh, and being filled with the Spirit is a huge part of that. If you recall back in Acts 6, this was a simil- uh, there was a similar description of Stephen, who was the first martyr in the church. He was told, uh, it was said of him that he was filled with the Spirit, and nobody could withstand him or his words because of that. He was able to testify accurately as to who Jesus was. And so for Apollos here, the thing that most qualified him was that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He's available. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now we find this one caveat. He knew only of the baptism of John. The only baptism that he knew of was the one that was administered by John the Baptist. And so he, uh, you know, he was telling people, you know, you have to be baptized in, in John's name. But Peter comes and he declares the truth in Acts chapter 2. At Pentecost, he says this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he says, Repent, Jesus, Holy Spirit. That's the way it works. And Apollos has, apparently, he believes the truth about Jesus, that he's the Messiah. He believes the right things, but he just, seems like he just simply hasn't heard uh, of this command to be baptized in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as Jesus told uh, his disciples he ought to operate. And so he gets up, he's excited, he's bold, eloquent, filled with the Holy Spirit. He begins to speak boldly in the synagogue, told verse 26. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So boldness, great, can be an awesome thing, but if it's paired with incorrect information, it becomes dangerous. Now, Part of this is because he had a lack of knowledge, not because he had uh, incorrect knowledge and chose to continue on the path of incorrect knowledge. He was missing something. And when those who were more mature in the Lord heard this, then they take him aside. Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him. They take him aside and explain to him the way of God more accurately. This is an example, again, of discipleship. They hear that someone is wanting to serve the Lord. They're zealous for the Lord. They're filled with the Spirit. They're like, yeah, let's do this. They want to get out there. They want to make it happen. And then some, like, incorrect information gets out there. They're like, okay, like, we need to have a little chat with this guy. They take him to the side, have a discussion with him. They're going to disciple Apollos. This is what... Christ has called us to, right? We're all disciples, and we're disciples who make disciples. This is the command. Now, for Apollos, he has a choice here, and I believe for us, we all have a choice as those who are disciples. Jesus tells us that we're disciples, and we ought to be disciples, but too often when we say, when Jesus says, come and follow me, 
or when those of us who are more mature in the faith want to teach and instruct and help those who aren't as mature in the faith, too often the response is like, no, I'm good, I'm going to figure it out on my own. Like, thanks. Or maybe you'll, you'll humor someone for a moment. Just let them say their piece. But inwardly, you're like, what? why are you talking to me? Like, I, don't, I don't need to hear from you. Jesus told us that we ought to be disciples and we ought to make disciples. But too often, we don't want to be disciples because we are self-centered. We don't believe that that's the best thing for us. We don't believe Jesus' command to be disciples because sin, because we desire independence. We don't want to have structure and accountability. We don't want people to be over us, ruling over us. We feel like people are going to be judgmental about our lives. Too often it's because we want glory and fame. We don't want to be someone else's disciple. We want people to follow us. And so we, tra- we, we transition our minds to like, oh yeah, I like that stuff about Jesus, but like I'm still trying to like, you know, make my way in this world and I want people to like know about me and I want glory and I want fame. Too often we fail to become disciples because we care too much about what other people think of us. But the command is still there nonetheless. We are to be disciples. These are some of the things that Apollos is tempted to struggle with, and, and I think that we're tempted to be struggled with, if we're, or that we, that we struggle with if we're honest. But here's what this good and true discipleship looks like. Priscilla and Aquila, they take him aside, and they explain to him the way of God more accurately. Notice this. Their response is timely, They don't let it go on forever. They address it quickly. They use discretion. They take him aside. They don't, you know, he's not out there preaching. They're like, you got that wrong. Like, you're an idiot. They're not like putting him on blast while he's up there in front of like all the Jews and causing division. They wait for him to come down. It's like, look, like I know you were saying this. and, And they're gracious. Their response and their opportunity to disciple Apollos is one where they're timely They use discretion, and they're gracious. They explain it to him more accurately. They don't say, like, oh, you shouldn't talk to anybody anymore because, like, you know, who knows what else you don't know about. We don't trust you anymore. They let it go. Learn from Priscilla and Aquila. They are disciples who are making disciples. I want you to see that they are disciples first and their tent makers second that's not like consuming their time of course they got to do that but they primarily are identifying as disciples their identity is in christ for you and i our our primary identity is one of disciples we are our identity is in christ first and we are students employees spouses parents children way after that. Our identity is in Christ. And anything else, any secondary identity that we might have must flow out of our primary identity of being rooted in Christ. And if our primary identity is being rooted in Christ, then this means that our pursuit in life is knowing and enjoying Jesus. Knowing and enjoying Jesus. Not in getting rich, not in making a name for ourselves, not in 
justifying our existence before others, not in showing that we can climb the corporate ladder, not in showing off our skill set, not in amassing followers on social media, none of those things. If our primary identity is in Christ, then our pursuit in life is knowing and enjoying Jesus. This is what Peter says in uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 8. He says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. So his primary uh, argument here is you don't see Jesus and you love him. You don't see him and you believe in him. So it's not like Peter's writing here to a group of people that don't have the experience that he had, where he was with Jesus, walking with Jesus. He says this, you do not now see him, you believe in him. And then he says this, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He tries to double it up. He's like, you rejoice with joy. Like, he's trying to like make this as big as possible. You're so pumped because you are seeing Jesus correctly. When you see how wonderful he is, when you see his work upon your life, what he's done for you, that produces a joy that's deep within. Not happiness. I know, I'm, I know it always sounds like I'm down on happiness. Like, be happy in your moment. But like, what we want is joy. Something that's not circumstantial. This is what Jesus was about. This is what happened when he called his disciples the first time. He said, come and follow me. And he appointed disciples that they might be with him. And then that he might send them out. First, they had to be with him. It was the point of being with him. He could have already found people who had a huge breadth of like Old Testament knowledge. He didn't have to come and be like, okay, like, you're basically like a fisherman. You have zero idea. You probably can't read. Like, you know, going around the room picking people that have zero skills. He, he could have like went to like the most competent people and it's like, yeah, you guys all got it together. Like, let's do this. But his point was that you have to be with him. Don't just do stuff for him. We want to do stuff with him. We've said it a million times. He can do it better than we can. He wants to do it with us. We don't need to show him like, oh, I got this for you, God. Intimacy with Christ has to precede our action. It has to. He doesn't even need us to do the action. He wants us to be near him and with him. Jesus calls all to be his disciples. And the thing that is radical about this, and the thing that should give us encouragement when we're like, oh, we're self-centered, we're selfish, I'm not a good disciple. The reason why we don't want to be disciples is, are all these things. Jesus calls us to be disciples fully knowing that this is how we are. And Jesus looks at the, the depths of our hearts and says, yeah, come and follow me. I know what's going on in there. I know you're faking it. I know you're putting on a facade. Come and follow me. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to handle it. And what he does is he models what it means to obey God in his life upon this earth. 
as he is the ultimate disciple. We learn what it means to be a disciple by watching Jesus as he obeys the Father, although we are his disciples. He comes, he lives upon the earth a perfect life on our behalf, and in doing so, rescues us from our own selfish identities. He calls those who are selfish to follow him so that we might see his selflessness and then say, I need that identity because my identity as a disciple isn't going to work. What I'm doing, I'm I'm never going to be able to, to be like Jesus like this. I must decrease and he must increase. Priscilla and Aquila are gracious and patient with Apollos. God is incredibly patient with us. We see this modeled all throughout Scripture. He knows that we are slow to repent. He knows that we lack self-control. He knows we're self-centered. He knows that we, are, that we long for self-sufficiency and independence from him, but yet still is patient with us. Priscilla and Aquila, they don't put Apollos on blast. They're not dealing harshly with him. They know that he's in process and he's being sanctified. That's just a part of life. When we are with one another, when we're discussing the things of God, there are things that are going to be said incorrectly. And we just deal with them as they go. We help each other. We sharpen one another. Lastly, the discipleship that Priscilla and Quilla show is sacrificial. In Romans 16, Paul gives us a glimpse into their faithfulness over the long term. He says this regarding them, greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. So this couple, they're just like these rock stars who are discipling uh, gently, patiently, graciously, in truth, but also sacrificially. They're like, it's going to cost us something, just like it cost Jesus everything to make us disciples. They model what it looks like to become a disciple. Verse 27, and when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. So the believers at Ephesus, even though uh, Apollos was kind of blowing it there for a moment, he is discipled. They see his growth. They see how useful that he could be in the service of the church, and therefore they encourage him. They also prepare the way for his arrival uh, by writing this letter of recommendation uh, on his behalf, so that way when he goes, he'll be cared for. They will accept him. <coughs> um, we're told that when he arrived, he greatly helped those through great, uh, who through grace had believed. Later, we find in 1 Corinthians 3 a description of Paul's work, or excuse me, of Apollos' work uh, in, a, in a short statement by Paul where Paul says this, I planted this church in Corinth, Apollos watered it. He nurtured it. He gave it what it needed. He was there for the moment to serve it. But he says, but God gave the growth. It was God who made this church blossom. So Apollos is faithful, he's changed, he's grown, he's matured. Verse 28, and he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, by, uh, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So again, we see that Apollos is likened to Stephen, uh, how he was in Acts 6. 
Uh, we're told that, Steve, that uh, the Pharisees there could not withstand the wisdom uh, and the spirit which, with which Stephen was speaking. Uh, Apollos, very similar in this regard here. He powerfully refutes the Jews. He speaks from the scriptures. He's engaging with the Jews as an evangelist, as an apologist. But his, his tactic here, it's rooted in the scriptures. Now, it's helpful for us to consider this in this perspective, but, but we also want to zoom out and see the bigger picture. For Apollos, this was the most helpful place for him to begin. We see that he begins at taking the scriptures that the Jews already believed and then says, let me reinterpret what this means for you. Let me show that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah, that he fulfills the prophecies that are spoken of. He is the fulfillment, the culmination of all you've been longing for. It's helpful for us to see and helpful for us to find that uh, as a foundation for our lives and for our perspectives. But we need to be led by the Holy Spirit in our day, in our modern times, because we don't have a common belief that the Old Testament is Scripture in our day and age. If you go out onto campus or you go to your jobs, you can't be like, let me show you from the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills this. They're going to be like, I don't, even, I don't care about the Old Testament at all. Like, I don't have an argument. There's no argument for you to make there. You have to know not that there is something that you can take this angle of, of looking at arguing from the scriptures to prove that Jesus is, is the Christ. I mean, you've you got to just get to like, these are the scriptures at all a lot of times. Like these are trustworthy and accurate and that we should speak from, uh, use these as truth. But the angle that we that stands true for everyone is that everyone is seeking to justify their existence, to validate why they're here. We have to start at a broader level to show not just that the scriptures are true, but that what you're working for in life is to prove that you belong here, that you're accepted, that you're valued. Everyone's working to prove that. And we find and we present that Jesus is the only one that knows what you've done, what you've been through, what you've experienced and offers you full acceptance. An invitation. He says, I know where you've been. I know what you've done. I know what you've experienced. I know what you're hiding. Come to me. And I will take your burden and you take mine. Mine is easy light and I will give you rest for your souls and that's the thing everyone's looking for there's a bunch of restless souls out there trying to justify their existence 
We find that only Jesus is the one that provides that true and ultimate rest. Making disciples is as much about being a disciple yourself as it is about making disciples. We can only make disciples when we are seeing Jesus clearly and we are relying on the Helper. We need to find our rest in him. We need to be men and women who are looking to him to give our souls rest, finding our identity in him. We cannot offer something to others which we do not have ourselves. And only by the Holy Spirit can we accomplish, can we desire to do what Jesus has called us to do. To actually accomplish it. On our own, we're out of luck. But with God, all things are possible. Making disciples is a tall task. It seems very difficult when you're considering like you have to be gracious and patient with people who like make dumb mistakes and do dumb things and you know are going to probably resist your discipleship efforts because sin and selfishness it sounds like a huge task sounds like something difficult to accomplish but making disciples it starts simply with you yourself seeing jesus and enjoying him and that's what we do week after week here. All we want to do is lift Jesus up and just get out of the way so we can all see him clearly and respond. So let's do that together. Lord, we're thankful for your wonderful love for us. We're thankful that you have demonstrated your love towards us, that while we were sinners, you died for us, while we were your enemies, you willingly gave your life. And now, Lord, we want to respond. We want to see you clearly. We want to see you lifted up. We want to see all that you have given for us. And we want to respond with thanksgiving. We want to respond with worship. We want to, we want to respond to who you are. And so, Lord, help us to overcome our temptation to be indifferent. Help us to overcome our temptation to just sit on our hands and endure our time of response, but Lord, we want to respond in thanksgiving. Overrule our sinful hearts. Lord, as we've spent this time looking at your word, we pray that you would take all that we have and set it upon Jesus. Lord, we want our mind's attention and our heart's affection to be oriented around the beauty of Christ. And so be glorified as we respond to you now. You are worthy of all glory and honor and praise. We love you. Amen.